Hi everyone, welcome to KikiTV.life and this is our expert event and I'm really excited to be sitting down today with a wonderful coach, James Cornblue. James and I are <clears throat> actually classmates from high school and we met back up in New York City in the early 90s in the yoga world and then um, Jamie has been a practitioner of martial arts and yoga internal yoga for 30 years or more. And what I was interested in talking with Jamie, one, he's a wonderful coach. He's supported me as a coach over the last 10 years. And two, he's someone that has practiced yoga for so long. He highly values his daily practices, but he's not a yoga teacher. He's a yoga practitioner. And I imagine yoga benefits his life in every way. So that's sort of why Jamie is here as a longtime practitioner and then as a coach and just to discover what is coaching, how does it benefit others and um, any, you know, any secret shamanic visual visionary insights that Jamie has for us. Jamie's also an extraordinary um, sculptor. So he's a many faceted active person. Hi, Jamie. Welcome. Hi, Kiki. How's it going? Going well, thank you. I'm so glad you're here for our first expert event. So, Jamie, we went to high school together. Mm -hmm. We lost touch uh, for about 10 or 12 years. I was living in the East Village, teaching yoga in the East Village, which back in the uh, mid to late 80s, early 90s, there was a lot of yoga practitioners in the East Village, but it was pretty empty. Now we're used to seeing a yoga shop on every corner and there was very few. And Jiva Mukti Yoga was an exciting hub for artists, for people learning yoga. The East Village was all about artists. So it made sense that I was in that neighborhood. I was an actress, a downtown performer. I was writing, performing one woman shows. I was working in postmodern dance and experimental theater, independent film. And um, Jamie, how did you find your way to Jiva Mukti Yoga? You were on the Upper West Side, which in New York speak is like, you know, Texas yeah. or something. Yeah, well, I was on the Upper West Side and uh, had been rehabbing my knees in a uh, yoga class in a basement of East West Bookstore. And I was in law school, stressed out. Uh, had been building houses in Maine and then was in lower Manhattan in law school. And uh, a friend of mine said, come to Jiva Mukti. That's a real yoga studio. And so I went with him and I fell in love, really. I mean, it was the first time I had been exposed to um, body as sacred vessel, um, breath, um, inner disciplines and uh, yeah the rest is history and so it was a time where I was rehabbing my body from years of being a um, hard playing a, soccer player a hard playing soccer player and um, you know just hard on my body really and by the time I was 28 or 29 or so, I, my body started breaking down. And uh, I was fortunate that I went to an orthopedic surgeon who said, go practice yoga. I'm not going to uh, do surgery. Go practice yoga. And so I showed up at Juvamukti and, uh, and then ran back into you, Kiki, 
in one of those classes. Yeah, that was wonderful. Then yeah. we started having kind of cultural outings and, to, you know, I think drinking coffee and talking and walking in Central Park and talking about uh, kind of mystical and esoteric explorations. Yes. And so I, so you went to law school and I know that you became involved in mediation, conflict resolution, and pretty high level conflict resolution going into prisons and things like that. Did that precede getting your law degree or was that part of what led you to get sort of credentialed as a lawyer? Um, well, it's a long story, but the short story of it is uh, after college, I was attracted to war zones. And so I spent time in Central America, in Nicaragua, and also in the Middle East. And for some reason, I was attracted to war zones. And uh, then I came back to the U.S. after a few years of traveling and living in war zones and hanging out with people playing soccer and doing whatever people do in war zones, really. And, uh, and then I decided to credential myself to go to law school to become a mediator. And so I went to Cardoza Law School. And from the beginning, I was a generalist. And um, I was just, you know, someone who would sit with people in conflict, you know, racial conflict, ethnic conflict, business conflict, uh, family conflict. It almost didn't matter. And so I used uh, conflict as a doorway into being of service, really. And it wasn't only until later that I realized that most of us mediator uh, conflict people, uh, you know, have inner conflict that we need to work through. And uh, it's later in life that I get humbled by interpersonal conflict. Um, and so the long story is I was attracted to war zones and conflict as a, as a young man and, uh, and just decided to train myself and get credentialed. And so, yeah, I was in New York and one day I would be in Rikers Island uh, facilitating, mediating, stabbings, you know, stuff like that. And the next day I would be uh, in a corporation in Goldman Sachs in the 40th floor. So I'm, yeah, it didn't really matter. People are people and conflict is natural. And so for me, the question is, how do I sit with people and help them through that? Did you ever experience fear or have to talk yourself down from fear or stereotyping or assumptions or ideas that might come up around going into a prison or meeting people who, you know, who commit violence and use weapons? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I was fearless in, in, in the face of conflict, honestly. Um, but I will tell you, and so no, when I went to Rikers Island and in prisons, I, I just got into the zone um, and I treated people like people and it was always reciprocated. But I will tell you that I started to utilize what I was learning uh, at Jiva Mukti and, and in my personal practices because I realized that uh, when I would go into a difficult situation, my heart was racing. And I realized uh, that when I would do 
breathing practices. I would walk around the block wherever I was and I would do breathing practices and heart-centered breathing practices and relax my heart. And I realized that when my heart was relaxed, I could show up and be present for people. And it didn't matter what was going on outside of me. I, and I realized I didn't have to say anything. I would just sit with people and encourage them. And then they would find their way out of things. So yeah, anxiety and fear, yes, but it's internal and I wouldn't show it to anybody. And it was only when I got attuned to myself that I realized that I was in an, an anxiety reaction and then I had the tools to get out of that anxiety reaction and into a place of service, really. So you said something, thank you, Jamie, you said something earlier that conflict is natural and uh, that makes a lot of sense. Conflict is natural. Many of us, we're always trying to avoid conflict or we see that we have conflict. We might judge ourselves for that. Um, or, you know, we think, why can't everyone get along? Why can't we have this world peace? So tell me, conflict is natural. How can we accept that and uh, use that knowledge to benefit ourselves around conflict as opposed to being in that, you know, response, uh, fight or flight state. Well, when I say conflict is natural, what I mean is, is that, um, it's a natural occurrence. It, it, it happens. It's, it's friction, it's energy, it's opposing forces, um, that sort of collide and it can be relational conflict. It can be, systemic conflict it can be inner conflict and so it is it's it, and it's designed to get us to wake up and pay attention actually conflict is there it's always an indicator of change needing to happen and what i've learned is is that it's it's very easy for us to um to expect in a relationship someone else to change and so oftentimes and i learned this from sitting with thousands of people in conflict and all of us in conflict are always pointing the finger at someone else. And what I've learned is when I'm pointing the finger at you, Kiki, it's you who's the problem. It's really me. It's really, and so what I learned from mediating, and I don't mediate a lot anymore because very small numbers of situations are appropriate for mediation for lots of reasons. But what I learned is, is that we can transform conflict on a dime, I immediately just by transforming my own mindset and my own attitude about it. And so when I take full responsibility to get out of the fight flight, which is in the primordial brain, it's the amygdala, it's right. what happens when we're threatened. It, we release cortisol, which is a stress hormone. It toxifies our body, it protects us. Adrenaline too gets released. It's when we're in that toxic conflict cycle that we need to get out of it. And so, uh, so the answer for me always is, and, and oftentimes, and I really honestly had to get humbled by interpersonal conflict, by marital conflict, honestly, in order to, uh, you know, for the conflict expert to get humbled by conflict. And so the conflict's a teacher. It really is. It's, it's my best teacher. It's, uh, it reminds me to get on my yoga mat and be humble and and, you know, and do my practices to get me out of a stress reaction and into a prefrontal cortex 
place so that I can be the creative that I am. And so conflict, if we're wise to it, is a trigger for creativity. Great. And I know that creativity is also part of your practice. How do you make, like, you know, I think we hear so much from people, I don't have time for this, I don't have time for that. You have time for, you make time for yoga. You make, you spend a lot of time in nature, in walking, even if you're, when you do work half the week in New York City, you're in Central Park with your big dog, walking for hours, and then you're kind of in an upstate area, probably not far from where I am now, and you're out in nature, <clears throat> you make time, you have plenty of time with your son, plenty of time in nature, plenty of time for practices, and then you do very inspired wood sculpture where you're taking fallen wood or fallen pieces of wood, trees on your walks, and then hauling them or bringing out your tools or hauling them and doing wood sculpture. So, and then you're also working, you're a responsible family man and you travel to clients. You have sort of high level, um, kind of big money, uh, you know, client advisement that you're doing. How would you say you plan your time or have the time to do everything that you do? You also participate in, supporting your older parents though they're pretty active you still support them in many ways so we hear so often i don't have time i don't have time what you do in a day or over let's say the course of a week how you manage time is a lot what would you say about that how do you approach your day and your schedule um well i make time I make time for the things that are most important and that's just so it's management. It's yeah. Management. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's management. Um, I don't know. Um, what I would say is, is that um, what I do make time for is a morning practice every morning. That's, that's what I make time for. And so uh, what I've learned is is that, I, and part of it is because I love it. I love to get up, and I I personally make my coffee. I do my thing. I, and then I find my way onto my yoga mat every morning. Uh, and if I if it's not my yoga mat, then it's outside. Uh, but so I make time uh, for the things that are most important. And and I also have a philosophy of going slow to go fast. And so when I, so in the morning, I, my attitude is if I'm doing my morning practice, I am digesting the night, <laughs> I'm preparing myself for the day, and I see my day before me, and I know what's coming. And so I do make time for everything in my mind, and then I make sure that my mind and my Google Calendar are synced up. And so I, I build time in, and I try not to waste time. Time is sacred. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. It's like, and I learned that from my father. You mentioned my parents. My, my father is 90, almost 94. My mom is 95. They don't, and, and they both, they, and they live life as if today were the last day. And so I do live that way that I live as if this is the last day. Um, and, and it's the best day. 
it, well, it, it's, it's all we have is right. current reality. It's like, and so because of that, I, I mean, and I, you know, and it's not, it's not the best for everybody. I was talking to an old friend yesterday and he's, he's in a rough place. Right. And so what did I tell him? He's like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I tell him? I like, I, I, you know, I can't fix, you know, him or what he's got going on. But I said, look, do you want my opinion? And he said, yes, tell me. I said, do corpse pose. Okay. I said, just <laughs> because he, his force, his life force was almost gone. Hmm. And I said, just practice letting go. Like maybe, maybe it's time to go and maybe it's not, but at least practice it and see how it feels when you're, you know, practicing letting go and letting go of life. And that's that, you know, so I don't know. I, I don't know if it's management. For me, it's do my morning disciplines and then everything else takes care of itself in, in my experience. And um, so I wanted to ask you about the role of the coach for others. And I imagine, I know you do, let's just say, at least two categories of coaching. One, you're brought in by executives or whoever to work with a particular person who's not doing what they should be doing. Um, we need this executive or our our leader is too creative. He's all over the place and we need this other thing, work with this person. So that's, this is how most executive coaching happens is that someone might be a high performer, but they have a terrible temper. And before they get fired, the uh, company will bring in an executive coach that can be very transformational for people. But it's very rare that someone says, Someone says, if a company says, we're getting you an executive coach, that person is like, they're going to effing fire me. How dare they? I make so much money for this company. And initially, and maybe always, someone's not receptive to a coach. Then there's other people who say, I really want to grow. I'm stuck. I'm in this glass box. I'm going to work with a coach. Um, so talk about that. Tell me what your role is when you're brought into a somewhat antagonistic position, but you're there to serve. Um, or rephrase my question if it wasn't exactly accurate. Well, it's, you know, I, I think about coaching as a, uh, as an athlete, honestly, um, because that's how I learned about coaching and coaching, all the sort of coaching and team metaphors in, in the workplace come from sports and other high performance activities like violin or anything where we're trying to refine a talent, um, a one-on-one -on -one or a group, you know, outsider, the coach, who's working on the talent, who's working on, who's seeing the talent and elevating the talent through practice. And so that's how I see it. I see it. And so for many years, um, so you know my first great soccer coach, like Jim San Marco, who was right. uh, who saw me in gym class, and I never played soccer, really. But in gym class, I, I think I do want to just hit pause for one moment, which is when back in the '60s and '70s, when we were kids and teenagers, soccer was not very visible in the U.S. 
Um, and many schools didn't even have a soccer team, which most soccer moms would be like, what do you mean they didn't have soccer teams? That's the center of the universe. Soccer was really fringe still at that time. And um, uh, we at our shared high school had a gym teacher who took up a passion for soccer and took a really eclectic group of um, boys at that time or teen boys and turned them into a highly competitive world traveling championship team. And this was a high school that only has about, it's a public high school, but only about a hundred kids in a graduating class. So you have a high school with like 400 kids. How are you, soccer isn't even a thing. How does this guy create a really like a world-class team of high schoolers that are traveling uh, around the world and competing with kids raised on soccer, football, kids raised with like the ball stuck to their toe. Right. So that's, uh, so you got into, you had this great soccer coach. Well, and he, he wasn't even a, he wasn't a soccer player. He, but he was a great coach. And the reason, and what he did with me was in gym class, he took me aside after gym class. And I remember we were playing soccer and I don't remember being good. I just remember running around the field and doing whatever an untrained soccer player would do. And he pulled me out, you know, out and he said, look, uh, do you play football? (laughs) And I said, yes. He's like, "Uh, do you like it? I was like, not really. (laughs) He said, well, what do you not like about it? I said, well, I like to catch the ball and run, but I don't like getting hit. I don't like playing defense. And so he said, so, you know, you look like you love playing soccer out there. I said, yeah, it's fun. I get to run around. He's like, well, if you practiced, you could be good. He said, Mm -hmm. if you practiced, you could be all state by the time you're a junior or whatever it is. And this was eighth grade. And he told me that. And I listened, right? Because I'm coachable. Um, I'm willing to, because I want it. I like the idea. I like the idea. And so he motivated me. He, He saw the talent. And that's the coach's job. It, a, a mentor is very different than a coach. A mentor is someone who has been there and done it. I can't mentor you, Kiki, as a yoga teacher. You can mentor me as a yoga practitioner. You can say, I've been there. I've done it. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you unconditional love. I'm going to you know, hold you accountable for the best that you are. A coach doesn't have to so Jim San Marco I was a better soccer player than Jim San Marco after about 10 weeks but he was the one that saw my talent and and said practice 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 and so that's what a coach does so going back to your question I resisted being an executive coach for many years honestly um mostly because I thought it was jargon I thought it was uh just business's way to co-opt peak performance jargon and methodology. And I, I was a younger guy and I resisted it. I didn't want to do it because just because I thought it was stupid. Um, but people kept on asking me. And at some point, a good friend of mine who was an executive coach said, James, stop saying no, just say yes. Right. And just do it. Stop saying no, just open yourself up. They're going to pay you handsomely. All you have to do is show up and you can build your own discipline. You can figure it out. 
And so that's what I did. And probably about 12 years ago, I was burnt out mediating. I was burnt out from violent conflict. I was tired of being in boardrooms and watching lawyers and business people yell and scream at each other. I was sort of conflicted out. And, uh, and I transitioned into being of service as a, you know, as a coach. And so the answer is that some people get sent to coaching because they're at risk and because they're putting the organization at risk. Some people, some organizations invest in the development of leaders because they know that uh, if they're trying to build a, a culture, an inclusive culture, if they're trying to build a culture that supports the human beings in delivering on the business, promise that some sort of talent development makes sense. And so when I go in, it's pretty basic, honestly. I shut up, you know, I, well, I ask questions and I shut up and listen. And what I'm listening for is the natural talent. Who are you? What are you, what are you gifted at? And how can I motivate you to develop that gift and that talent to be the best that you are for yourself and your family and the people that you're there to serve in the workplace? And then, so typically, the, you know, it's like the yelling, screaming executive. What I'm, I mean, yes, they're acting out there and a person in the position of power and authority who's yelling and screaming and being an abusive you know, leader is very destructive, but the truth is they're just a human being. And what I'm looking for is where are they great? And what's the one thing, what's the one habit that they have? Let's say yelling in when I'm stressed or withdrawing when I'm stressed. What's the one thing that they're going to change? Uh, and replace with something else. And that's where I use personal disciplines to help people to do it themselves. I'm not going to do it for them. I'm going to say, look, here's what I see in you. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. And it's going to be up to you. It's the empowerment model, which is mm -hmm. like, it's up to you. It's not up to me to do it for you. Great. Thank you so much. So I know that you, from what you shared with me, we're working with uh, coaching not only a team leader, but her whole team. And you were in a very non-yoga environment. You were introducing yoga practices like bandhas, these internal lifts of the pelvic floor and the lower abdomen. And you were also uh, using classical yoga breath work. What was, how, how, how did you introduce this is what we're going to do and how did you enroll uh, the team leader and the teams to try things that might seem very esoteric and have nothing to do with their job? Well, Seemingly. I mean, yeah, I mean, first of all, I would never, um, people have to ask me for mm -hmm. it first. Um, they you know, uh, someone needs to ask for guidance. And so typically what I do, uh, smart people, analytic people, people in positions of power and authority, or anyone's, uh, anyone really uh, is, ha has a very powerful brain. 
Um, and what I've learned to do is to um, help people to see when we're in a stress reaction. Okay. And so it's, it's very clear how I am when I'm in a stress reaction. Right. Um, and, and so it's really a question. Once someone, once I or someone becomes aware of what I'm doing, both the positive impact I have and the destructive impact, then the question is, do you want to change it? Do you want to change that behavior? And if they say yes, it could be because the chairperson of the board says, you need to change. <laughs> if you don't change, you're going to be gone. It could be that they've gotten a lot of feedback from the universe or from their people saying, look, you know, you know how you are is not helpful. Right. So the first question is, are you motivated to change? And then the next question is, well, what are the options for change? And what I've learned is the most direct path to personal transformation is personal disciplines. And I will say, do you want to know you know, what I think. <laughs> you, and, and, and so then, and that leads to a conversation about breath. It leads to a, con because the breath is the best way to get out of a stress reaction. Uh, it leads to a conversation about body, which is where we hold uh, stress and memories and traumas and conflicts. And so the easiest, most direct path to change is to be the change that we aspire to. And so it's an inner discipline. And so, so yeah, so I teach um, only people that want to learn. And if people don't want to learn yoga or martial arts or a Wim Hof breathing, it doesn't matter. I'll find a way to motivate them. I'll find a way to get them breathing and into their body and out of a stress reaction. There's a lot of guys in particular that are quite uncomfortable sitting with self. Uh, women and trans people are, and, and more gender fluid people are way more open. And it's partially culture. It's partially constitution. It, it right, almost it's doesn't... It's or socialized. Absolutely. And so for men, except for yogi men or martial artist men or spiritually inclined men who who are comfortable going within men are one story you know how do you motivate a man that is you know resistant to going within i know how because i know his vulnerabilities right. right his insecurities women and gender fluid people are more are, are different and and but it's the same question as how do i motivate you how do i get into your you know, core and, and, you know, and elevate you. And most people, once they're sweating bullets, you know, the masters of the universe that we imagine, you know, are, no, they're in suits. And when you take the suit off, they're just humans. And so I sit with these men, women, and more gender fluid people who are very powerful and they're sweating bullets. And I'm asking them, well, what's going on? <laughs> You know, so I have a way of getting into it. And if they want what I have to offer, I'll give it to them. If they don't, then I'm going to encourage them to go find their own path. And how is this something that one could apply if you could offer sort of an exercise or a personal practice 
around maybe experiencing, you know, my own discomfort around something or my own resistance. If I, you know, what would be a practice that we could take as individuals where we could benefit from elevating our own talent? Okay. So let's start with self-awareness. Okay. And so if you would close your eyes and just breathe, gentle breathe, inhale and exhale. Relax your facial muscles. And if you would tap the back of your cranium right back here and even massage back there. That's the, uh, what they call the primordial brain. And now tap the forehead. That's the prefrontal cortex. It's where, quote unquote, executive function, creativity, analytics, vision lives. Tap your heart. circulatory system it's the pump for the body bring your hands down to your belly and just feel your belly as you breathe and then come back to the primordial brain back here and ask yourself how am I when I am in a stress reaction? Ask yourself and just listen for the answer. How am I when I'm not at my best? Then, Tap your forehead and bring and relax your arms and bring attention to that third eye. And ask the question, how am I when I'm in this visionary state, when I'm in my most creative way and just listen for the answer and then tap your heart and breathe into your heart And ask the question, what's one serious gift, a natural talent that you have, that you have to share with others? And just listen for the answer.
and then come back. And so, you know, for me, the tool is becoming aware of the stories, you know, that we all have, um, getting comfortable with inner peace and asking questions of self and getting clear. Um, and so, Kiki, what did you get when, if anything, if you, when you asked yourself, how are you when you're not at your best? Thank you for sharing this um, practice with us today, Jamie. I'm, um, I'm um, uh, defensive, uh, protective, and short-tempered. Yeah, me too. <laughs> right? You know, so all of us are, right? When I'm, you know, and so that's the stuff you know, that brings us into the gutter. And it's not that we want to avoid it or, 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 or run away from it, but we have to be with it. Um, and, and, and we can't let that rule. The primordial brain is powerful and we need it. It's, it's, um, it's cortisol, it's adrenaline, it triggers the endocrine system. It, it triggers, it, you know, if we're really good at breath, it triggers natural cannabinoids and opioids. It triggers the pineal gland that 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 triggers melatonin and serotonin, right? Um, what did you get? And, and so that part of us, it, it gets uh, stuck, and that's where we're stuck. <laughs> and this is my teaching in conflict, right? We get stuck there. We, we get attached here. And so we have to, as humans, we've got these big brains. We have to intentionally get out of that and do the breathing and the discipline, anything to get us out of that. What did you get here? When, uh, you know, how are you, Kiki, when you're in your best way? I'm generous and illuminating. I can just share and, and whether I'm actively talking sharing or i'm just participating and hearing from others i'm just generous i'm illuminating i feel you know vast limitless energy right and so that's all of us right it's it comes it manifests differently for each of us and so when we get to know ourselves and we can uh, elevate our consciousness um, and so we don't have to get stuck in the lower vibrations, right? We can elevate our, our vibrations intentionally. That's the beauty of intentionality. Uh, and it's also the beauty of personal disciplines that, uh, that use the breath and the body as sacred vehicles to be of service, really. Because if we can't bring our best selves, our open hearts, our, you know, our vision and our creativity, if we can't bring that, well, then we end up like these, you know, criminal, corrupt jerks, right? Um, that's who we are if we allow that to happen. Um, and also, we end up like people who are unhappy in their lives and saying, these people should do this differently and do that differently and do this differently to make my life better. My life would be better 
if every, everybody, boss, my family, right. my neighbors did all these things. Right. And that's, that feels terrible. Right. And so the connected thing with that is, and this is the sort of the science of breaking brain habits. There is a good book. I haven't read the whole book, but I like the book. I read the introduction. It's called The Power of Habits. And it, it describes the, you know, it, it's, it's basically the science of breaking destructive habits. I read the book too. Yeah. What's good about it is that it, it, it's, it applies for the individual human and it applies for the organization or the community or the collective culture, right? And, and so the science basically says, and it's my experience too, is that what we do is we elevate the genius, we elevate the natural talent, and we choose one destructive habit at a time to replace, to become aware of and replace with something constructive and creative, right? And so things like, I mean, when I'm blaming someone for anything, that's a, that's a, a reminder to me to take full responsibility. I created this circumstance. Yes, I can blame you. I can point the finger. Or I can take full responsibility. That's leadership. Full responsibility for elevating my consciousness and my contribution and bringing my highly elevated state to the equation. And by definition, when I transform my state, the external state changes too. Great. And then the heart. Oh, the heart. What did I ask about the gift? Yeah. What's, yeah. what's, yeah. What, what's this? Um, yeah. What, what came out of your heart? What came up for me was telling story. I'm a storyteller, telling stories. And um, uh, sort of inspiring others and inspiring communities through sharing stories. So is your son right there? He is. <laughs> and, and, and he's... he's is he offer- patiently waiting for you? No, he's actually... I think he's curious and he's also offering me watermelon right and so yeah so he's right there and he's probably in between you know online something yeah so yeah so telling stories right so i've always been drawn you know i wrote a lot of stories as a child i played a lot of um theater you know pretend and i wasn't i didn't play with dolls like girls that had like 60 barbie dolls but I like the creativity of animating, <laughs> animating dolls and stuffed animals to have full creative, thea- the- you know, to be in, create, write, you know, stories and roles for them and stuff like that. And then, um, you know, I studied theater and I've written and performed and I still write a lot. And, and obviously even starting my YouTube channel, it was about telling stories and, I had a very powerful coaching session with you a number of years ago, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And you asked me like what was standing there in my way or something. And at the time uh, I was really over exhausted. I had gone through, I had terrible B12 anemia and all these other things that came to light, terrible D3 and uh, 
you know, I was exhausted, exhausted, exhausted. I didn't even know how deficient I was, but I was like, I'm so exhausted. I'm so exhausted. And you led me on a kind of a visual journey, asking questions, creating, you know, going on this journey, creating this, these images in my mind. And, um, you were like, what's the one thing we got to the end of this journey. And I was like, I just have to spend so much time preparing. I've just been so much time preparing to do, you know, I have to spend four hours for this sutra class or for this yoga workshop or whatever it was. And um, you said, you don't have to prepare. You change the game just by showing up. Mm. And I really embraced that. I was like, wait, I prepared. I went to India for 25 years. I sat, you know, before so many teachers. I woke up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. for so many years. I did hours and hours of practices. I, you know, imbibed the Sanskrit. I learned the reading, the writing, the memorizing, um, and all of these therapeutic aspects of the yoga and practicing the yoga. And, um, and I was just like, it was so liberating for me. And if I say it, it's maybe it sounds kind of egotistical, but it doesn't feel egotistical for me. And I would say this applies to everyone, <laughs> you know, this, but this was my big illuminated discovery is the knowledge, whatever knowledge I have, whatever practices I've done, um, it's here, it's here in my consciousness. And I really just have to focus call that forth and bring it here to the present moment. So I do, in a sense, change the game. I do change the room, say, just by telling the story, just by sharing this teaching. Um, and that I didn't need to prepare. I really just, I had to trust um, that I knew the material that I was teaching or sharing. And if I didn't know it, I had no business teaching it so um and i have taught subjects sometimes i'm asked to teach bhagavad-gita and there's portions of the gita i know and there's portions that i don't know very well or at all and i'll say like these are the portions i know these are the portions i've studied under great tutors and this is what i can share um so to really know that yes i changed the game just by showing up what does showing up mean it means that I'm in that yoga mind. I'm in this place of awareness and I'm just aware. And then the wisdom flows forth. The teaching uh, dialogue happens and it might be, you know, in traveling or, you know, encountering new cultures or new people or, I really do just enjoy being completely present and these transformational experiences happen and it's very, it's very joy filled. So, you know, I was listening to you and I, I, I remember saying that I remember where we were and I remember talking to you about it and I was thinking I can never tell anyone to do anything that I don't do myself. I just, I, I just can't do it. Um, and um, so I had an experience um, 
where I was asked to identify a gift. And sometimes, like, what does a gift mean? I mean, it's like, it's something I receive. But a gift is something that we either receive or we give. We give and we receive gifts. And, you know, what does that mean? And someone had asked me to, you know, the gift is with you. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But he pushed me. He pushed me. And, and what I realized is, is that my gift, you know, it's not one thing. But I do, I do have a natural talent for non-judgment. Yes. Um, and it lives in my heart. I didn't know that until he challenged me and he pushed me and he's like, well, where is it? Where is that? And I, I realized that I do have a non-judgmental heart. It's open to almost anybody when I'm at my best, when it's relaxed. And, and, and what that does is, now it, there's, a, there's a shadow to every gift. There's a, a there's a, right on the other side of the gift, your storytelling gift. I suspect on the other side of that, there's something else. On my the other side of for me, and I learned if I just showed up, it didn't matter the conflict. It didn't matter if I was in Goldman Sachs or if I was in Rikers Island or if I was with a tech entrepreneur or you know a kid in juvenile justice. It didn't matter if I showed up with a relaxed and open and non-judgmental heart, I freed up that human being to be who they are. That's my job. Okay. And I knew that. And I started doing that. And I started, and this guy that helped me to see that said, just show up like that. That's all you have to do. You don't have to just show up like that. And that's enough. Right. What I learned is, yeah, it's enough, but the, there's a flip side of the gift. And the flip side is that, uh, I'm very trusting with that open and non-judgmental heart, and uh, not everybody is trustworthy, right? And what I learned is I had to team that open, non-judgmental heart with a very discerning mind, and I really had to be a firm and non-negotiable agent of saying, "Well, I can feel you. I'm willing to be open with you, but uh, I'm not going to trust you. And here's why. So the gift thing is great. And we got to be careful of the gift because right on the other side of it is, is a place where we can take advantage of the gift towards others and get taken advantage of. And so it's really about setting healthy boundaries around the gift. So just wanted to say that. Thank you, Jamie. So um, we're going to be wrapping up shortly. I really want to thank you for joining me today and kicking this off. You've shared so much value with us. And I just wanted to give you a moment or two, a couple minutes, if there's anything that more that you'd like to add. Well, let me check with myself because it's very easy for me to just talk. Um, no, I feel fully complete. Thank I feel you. I really, I really enjoyed this. I'm so yeah. glad that you uh, met me here today. And I do want, I know that you recently. Uh, pursued something that had been on your mind for ages, which is you've launched a podcast. Mm -hmm. And it's a really unique podcast. I'm really enjoying it. And actually, uh, James and I were speaking about 
seven or eight weeks ago, and we saw the world was starting to change about were we going to be able to be out and about and moving and everything. And I said, you know, I want to be sharing um, more like online courses. And you were like, start a yoga studio, start a yoga institute, <laughs> a an institute of higher education online. It's time for you to open your yoga school. So I right. want to thank you for that. I've opened my uh, yoga institute wellness platform. Thank you. Right. You're part of the launch of that today. This is week one. And then you were telling me about someone who's been, you had an inner call to do a podcast. Someone's really been encouraging you to it. And kind of around the same time, uh, you moved to actually making that happen. So how's that going and where can people listen to it? I don't really know where they, I, I think they can listen to it on, it's called, the Mind Fire podcast, um, and you can either listen to it on Anchor or on Spotify. And so that's Anchor.fm or on Spotify. And we're gonna go like James Cornblue, the Mind Fire podcast, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, you know, I I I'm doing that because um, it gives me an opportunity to get out whatever I'm thinking uh, through voice. And I, 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 I really didn't, until about six weeks ago, I didn't know what a podcast was, honestly. Um, friends of mine have been encouraging me at different times in my life. Uh, fans of Joe Rogan have been encouraging me to just do something like that. And I, I poo-pooed it. I didn't really listen to it. And so when I was forced to stay at home for a while, I started to listen and I started to do art uh, and make art. And, and so for me, the Mind Fire podcast it is about the mind being on fire. It is about what lights us up. It's what lights me up. Uh, currently, it's just me expressing on themes um, and I let whatever comes out get out and I'm not editing it at all. I just, and I have found the simplest way to do it. And the reason why I did it, I just put on this headset and connect this headset to my phone and talk and record it and then push a button and it goes on to anchor.com and they share it. So it's very basic. And so I like it. Uh, and currently it's for me and I'm just sharing it with friends and anybody else that really wants to listen what i do want to say in support of what you just shared and i think is would be helpful for everyone is do it the easiest way possible and you know we call this like a minimum viable product uh, or a minimum viable project it's like you want to do a podcast and if you think i have to build a studio it has to be soundproof i need a $1,500 microphone, I need uh, branding. No, it's like the easiest way. How are we gonna do it the easiest way possible? And so you just plug in your headset and you record into the anchor.fm platform. It's crazy. How do you do the soundtrack? Uh, anchor, oh. uh, anchor has, I mean, so, Literally 20 minutes after I heard a guy, Steve Olsher, on a because once I decided I wanted to do a podcast, I found the guy to learn from. His name right. is Steve Olsher. And right at the end of a webinar that he was doing, he said, Look, if you just want to cut to the chase, there is this anchor 
Dot-com platform. All you have to do is plug in a headset to your phone and record into your phone. I was like, wow. And so all the, you know, whatever you're hearing on there is on their site. It's free. It's available. And Great. honestly, the audio is pretty good. I think the audio is good too. <laughs> I know. Great. Thank you, Jamie. That's great. Well, thank you for coming today. Have a beautiful day. And I will be sharing this with kikitv.life. And eventually, after our subscribers uh, have, you know, get to feel that they are getting the best content first, then I will share it on YouTube and possibly on a podcast. And I'll alert you. And, uh, and uh, you can share it too. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. The best Thank to your you family too. there and enjoy. Today it's going to be 70, 80 degrees. Right on. We had snow. I know. Five days ago. I know. In May. And today it's going to be 80 degrees. Thank you, Jamie. Lots of love. Namaste. Thank you so much.